As we continue worshiping Jesus, let's open the word to hear from Jesus. Let me invite you to open up God's word with me this morning to the gospel of Matthew. And as we're turning to Matthew at this time, any elementary kids are welcome to to gather out in the foyer for the beginning of a children's worship uh, time that will uh, begin momentarily. And right here, we'll turn to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our journey, our trek uh, through the famous sermon On the Mount, these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're using uh, a Pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 786. 786. But let's turn our attention to uh, God's Word. Let's turn our attention to this Jesus of whom we've just sung. And let's hear from Him. And so even though you just sat down, as you find your place here, uh, would you join me standing for the reading of of God's Holy Word? Matthew chapter 5. Verses 21 through 26. Let's hear from God. Jesus says, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Would you pause with me as we turn to the Lord in prayer? Oh, Father, instruct us now. Or teach us now, speak to us now, confront us now, correct us now, shape us now, the presence and guidance and power of your Holy Spirit for the glory of your name. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Right here, beginning in, in this section, in this verse, verse 21, Jesus starts um, unpacking the practical implications of what he's just said in the previous verses, verses 17 through 20, and more specifically what he's just said in verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So just what is this surpassing righteousness? We learn from Scripture, we learn from Jesus Himself that it's a righteousness that flows from changed hearts. Not not just an external legalistic outward obedience, but an internal spirit-wrought transformation of character, one that only happens by the grace of God to those who are living in right relationship with God, to those who are in relationship with Him. And this is the way it's always been. Ever since sin entered the world, I think we have this impression sometimes, we get this impression sometimes that the Old Testament's all about obedience, the New Testament's all about grace. But salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. 
In other words, human sinners are only forgiven by the gracious initiative of the divine judge who welcomes sinners into relationship with him. It's about a relationship. Relationship of love and submission and worship between us and God. But somewhere along the way, we extrapolated the rules from the relationship so that it became all about following a rigid set of rules in order to gain the favor of God rather than following the rules in response to the gracious favor of God. That sounds like a subtle difference, but it's extraordinarily significant. It's a huge difference. One is a religion of, of works. And the other is a relationship of, of grace. And Jesus is saying all those relying on a religion of works are in pretty big trouble. For God's standard far exceeds what we naturally think or what we've been led to believe. In other words, God's standard is, is higher than what we naturally think. Meaning the depth of our sin is greater than we Initially realize we need more grace than we know. So Jesus begins then clarifying God's standard as it is spelled out, as it is stated in the Old Testament. And in order to make these claims that don't jive, that's what he's saying here, they don't jive with the teachings of the Pharisees and the practice of the scribes, Jesus emphasizes his unique and authoritative position. This is what we just sung. That's what David just read. But the uniqueness of Christ spells that out in Colossians chapter 1. Of course, we just sing that. You stand alone, I stand amazed. Jesus, only Jesus. You see, Jesus is a teacher, but he's not any ordinary teacher. No, Jesus holds greater authority than every other human teacher. He holds greater authority than every other human teacher. And that's what he's conveying right here as he unpacks this section in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when, when Jesus speaks, we ought to perk up and pay attention. Let's not miss the force of this here. Look at this. Jesus, verse 21. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Again, verse 31, it has been said, but I tell you. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And again, verse 38 and verse 43, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And the pronoun in each case is emphatic. But I tell you. Contrasting Jesus' authority with that of the other Jewish teachers of his day. We, we can't miss Jesus' unique and corrective authority in this pericope, and neither could the crowds. In fact, listen to how Matthew uh, wraps up this whole sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. He tells us, he says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he finished teaching, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And of course, this fits with, with Matthew's aim. This fits with his purpose in writing. 
this this fits with his mission and recording these things about Jesus of of Nazareth. Because Jesus, because Matthew is presenting Jesus, he, he wants us, he wants all of his readers to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's sent by God according to the promises of God to save the people of God. He tells us throughout his, his writing, beginning in the very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then later, he's, he's very intentional about capturing Jesus' question to Peter, to Simon Peter. Who, who am I? Who do, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You see, Jesus' authority prompted the people of his day and ought to prompt people today to ask, who is this man? Who is this Matthew says he's the Messiah. He is the son, the only son of the living God sent to save sinners so that they can be, so that we can be reconciled to God. And wrapped up in that mission to save is teaching sinners the depth of their need for a savior. Friends, in in Christ's teaching, in his preaching, we come to realize that true obedience is a matter of the heart. True obedience is a matter of the heart. Jesus reveals God's concern with the condition of our hearts. He reveals God's concern with the condition of our hearts. God sees our hearts. We saw this last week. He he sees our hearts and he, he wants our hearts. Not merely external acts of religion or righteousness, but he wants us. Not It's not about behavior modification, but about life transformation that flows from knowing him do you know him the old testament taught this jesus isn't contradicting the old testament here just a wrongful reading of it a misinterpretation of it but jesus is making abundantly clear that god's concerned with the condition of our hearts jesus would say elsewhere recorded in luke chapter 6 a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of see our hearts matter hearts matter to god so god transform our hearts God, would you transform our hearts? May that be our prayer. God, change me. God, change us by your grace. Mold us according to your character that we might be more like you. May us remember that song, that chorus from the 90s, mid to late 90s. I think, I don't know about your church, I don't know about this church, but I think my church sort of wore that out. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. And one manifestation of a changed heart is a changed attitude. That's what Jesus is going to say specifically in this section, a changed attitude toward other people, even those with whom we struggle to get along. For Jesus says both murderous actions 
and attitudes earn God's judgment. Both murderous actions and attitudes earn the judgment of God. Again, Jesus teaches God's looking at our hearts. So even if we don't break the, the letter of the law, even if we're not considered outward lawbreakers in that way, we may still be guilty of breaking God's law. Jesus isn't laying out more rules to follow in order to earn salvation, but he's showing the extent of our need for salvation. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, meaning Abraham's descendants, Israelites' ancestors given the Ten Commandments out Mount Sinai after being delivered from slavery, from bondage in Egypt, led out of Pharaoh's land across the Red Sea to gather at the mountain to receive the instruction of the Lord. How do we know that's who Jesus is talking about? Because of what he says next. He quotes the sixth commandment, Exodus chapter 20. You shall not murder. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Abraham's offspring, Abraham's descendants, Israelite ancestors, you shall not murder. But then he presses deeper beyond external obedience, saying that God's not only displeased and dishonored when human lives are wrongfully taken, but also, also when you simply have anger or hatred toward the life of another. Church, just the other evening, there, there was anger toward a brother uh, in the Jones household. Be transparent with you. We were, it was late one evening. I don't remember what night it was this week, a few days ago, but uh, I was with the boys in uh, their bedroom and uh, reading a, a book to them, I think. But I was looking down, immersed in a story, when all of a sudden, I just heard a slap across a cheek. And I looked up. And my five-year-old has knocked my eight-year-old across the floor out of nowhere. I kid you not. To this day, I still don't know. I, we, we don't know. I don't think, I don't think Paxton, my eight-year-old, knows either. Where, where did this come from? In fact, it came so out of left field, it seemed, that Paxton just sort of rolled over in shock and disbelief with a grin on his face and said, Eli, what was that for? And where did that come from? And had he had an opportunity to prepare for it, to see it coming. No doubt a serious brotherly brawl would have ensued. But it was so sudden as if there had been absolutely no contemplation of the consequences of this particular action. And yet, church, isn't that the difference oftentimes between a preschooler and a grown-up? Like, I don't know about you. We'd often like to hit a brother. Maybe not you. Maybe you're a bit holier than I. But every now and then we, we want to take it out on somebody. But our own experience tells us that's probably not a great idea. But Jesus says guilt not only applies to the one who harms, but even to the one who'd like to harm. Neither the action nor the attitude that precedes it is fitting for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus says that it's not just the man 
or the woman who slays another who's guilty before God, but it's also the one who in his mind has ill will toward another. For such hatred against another human made in God's image is sin against Almighty God himself. And it makes sense to pause and to note that Jesus isn't condemning all anger here. There is a righteous anger, a desire for justice. But right here, the word that Jesus uses conveys an intense anger or rage that lingers. It lingers toward another one that progresses. He describing here one that progresses from a hostile attitude to hateful speech. Raka. It's an Aramaic term of contempt. Verbalized hatred towards someone else. And calling someone a fool in that context would be like calling them an unsaved idiot. And Jesus says such behavior. He says such animosity toward another, not just in practice, but even in thought, is to play with the fire of hell. A reference to Gehenna, with a dump outside the city of Jerusalem where the trash was burned, constantly burned, that became a visual depiction used by Jesus himself to describe the horrors of hell. Church, the Lord cares what we think about one another. The Lord cares how we regard one another. The Lord calls us to love one another with a love that mirrors the kind of love that he has for us. And when we don't, when we don't, we sin and we deserve the judgment of God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not trying to beat us down with a longer list of rules to tick but to expose the depth of our failings so we rightfully abandon any sense of pride in our achievements, seeing our need for him and the magnitude of God's grace in order that we might respond with repentance and faith. You see, it's good and right to hear Jesus' words here and elsewhere and respond, woe is me. Woe is me, for, for I am a man of unclean lips who has spoken angrily toward a brother, who has thought evil toward a neighbor, and who deserves the judgment of God. That's what Jesus is saying. But we don't stay there. That's the good news. We don't stay there wallowing in our guilt for Christ doesn't let us stay there. No, he calls us to remember God's mercy. To remember God's mercy and to run into his love and then to show his mercy and his love to others. He calls us to repent and to repent by seeking reconciliation. Jesus calls us to seek reconciliation immediately. He calls us to seek reconciliation immediately, certainly to other people. And that's where he goes with this. But we can't 
do that well with others if we've not first been reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And then, brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, fellow disciples, be reconciled to one another. That's the application here. And Jesus provides two illustrations to drive it home. Verses 23 through 26. The first is of a man or woman who's gone to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And while they're in the temple with an animal to be sacrificed as a gift, an animal of atonement, a sacrifice for sin before God himself, an act of worship while they're at the altar in Jerusalem, remembers that a brother or sister has something against him. Mind you, Jesus is talking about addressing this teaching to to the crowds and the disciples gathered in, in Galilee some 80 miles to the north of the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, if that is you, if you're in that case, you're to leave your sacrifice there at the temple. You're to go first, travel 80 miles back home to Galilee, be reconciled to a brother or sister, and then return back 80 miles and continue worshiping the Lord. The point is the Lord cares deeply Deeply about my relationships with other people, so much so that my relationship with God is tainted when I'm bitter toward another, especially if it's a fellow believer. That's what Jesus means in this first illustration when he says a brother or a sister. Paul would say something similar in Galatians chapter 6. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Jesus would say something similar to his disciples in John chapter 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. But it's not just with fellow believers. It's especially with fellow believers, but not just with fellow believers, with all. With all we have wronged, even the adversary taking you to court. That's the second Application of the text in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is saying, settle quickly, settle quickly before things escalate and greater wounds are inflicted. This is like Paul's charge to believers in Ephesians chapter four, who've undergone a, a transformation of salvation, turned turning from an old way of living and being changed by the Spirit of God. He tells believers, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, seek reconciliation immediately. And praise God, church, the prospect of reconciliation reminds us that forgiveness remains possible. Wrongs can become right. Broken relationships can still be restored. And the reason that they can be truly restored is because in Christ, God has forgiven you. You see, the preacher in Matthew 5, the preacher in Matthew 5, Jesus, the preacher in Matthew 5, calling sinners to reconcile, is the person through whom we receive reconciliation. 
The one hated and murdered so that haters and murderers could be cleansed, become citizens, citizens in his forever kingdom. Citizens in the kingdom of heaven given a status, a new status, a new position, a new name, a new status, a status into which we grow, not earn, but grow as the spirit of God impresses the character of God upon the hearts of the people of God. So friends, let me ask you this morning, how's your heart? How's your heart? Who has your heart? Have you given your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you given your heart to him? Give him your heart. You see, reconciliation's hard. Acknowledging and admitting wrongs is not easy. Asking for forgiveness takes Humility. But such a posture is God's work. This is what he does. This is what he desires and this is what he accomplishes. This is what he does in the hearts of those who know him. This is what he does in his people. This is what he does in the saved. And Jesus, I think, is teaching. He's saying that the saved seek reconciliation. The saved Seek reconciliation. So let me ask you this morning, is there someone with whom you need to reconcile? The saved seek reconciliation. Is there someone, is there a brother or sister in Christ or someone else with whom you need to reconcile before you gather again to do what we do as the people of God to worship together? The Lord God himself. With whom do you need to reconcile? You see, here's a tangible way that God's people are salt and light in the world. Look at those passages just a few weeks ago. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What does that look like from day to day? Here's a tangible way we're salt and light. What does it mean? It means don't hold grudges. Do not hold grudges grudges and do everything in your power to eliminate any rationale for someone else holding a grudge against you. And as you do, church as we do, as God does in us, he'll use us. He'll use us to show the world the glory of his grace. Amen. Father, help us, stir us, change us, confront us, correct us, convict us, lead us to take these truths to heart, to apply them to our lives, to walk by faith in you, and to live for your glory. Spirit, do not let us merely hear these words and forget them. Do not let us merely hear these truths from from Christ and neglect them. Stir us. Lead us. Lead us to reconcile with others for the glory of your name. 
And God, lead us to do so because we know that in Jesus you have reconciled us to yourself, not because we deserve it, far from it, but because of your mercy. God, because of your love. God, because of your faithfulness, your compassion, your patience, and your grace. Continue reminding us of your character that we might walk according to it, that your spirit might impress your character upon our hearts, that we might truly be molded to become more like you. God, lead us now to express our faith through song, through confession of sin, through faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.